0: I'm an otherwise unqualified conservative donor who will make a great subject matter expert on this thing I know nothing about. I swear, Robbie Krieger Smith.
1: I'm going to take the heat for whatever the UCP is going to do. I'm on a government program review panel. I'm Deirdre Mitchell McLean.
0: Hi Deirdre. So today we're talking about government panels or rather government by panel. Yes. 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 And <laughs> the title of this episode is
1: You've Got It, The Right Stuff.
0: Awesome. So since being elected, the United Conservative government in Alberta has been largely governing by panel and uh, panel. Sorry. Decision making by panel decision-making by panel, um, or at least uh, using panels to provide political cover for their preordained policy choices, but I digress. Uh, So we currently have four panels that have been constituted so far. Mm -hmm. We have the Safe Consumption Site Review Panel. We have the Blue Ribbon Budget Advisory Panel. Mm -hmm. We have the Curriculum Review Panel and the Minimum Wage Expert. Expert in quotes, but I put the quotes there panel
1: like the the quotes definitely deserve to be there that actually the minimum wage panel is by far the worst <laughs> like, like i I mean the blue ribbon panel kind of looked half decent, yeah. like the people that were on it, not too many complaints, you know, some qualified individuals we had uh um Oh, McKinnon. no, uh, Dave. Dave Moore, yeah, he was he was my favorite one that was on that panel. Mm. The former uh, president and CEO of Alberta Treasury branches.
0: Yeah, you bet. Um, yeah, the I one, he was great. Yeah. No. And he obviously brings a lot of credibility. Um, Obviously, having somebody who was previously a finance minister and somebody who was a finance minister in an NDP government yeah. was an attempt to try and stifle uh, criticism of that panel being stacked or biased in in one particular direction. Um, so Janice McKinnon was the Saskatchewan finance minister under Roy Romano's uh, NDP government. Mm-hmm. And they're largely actually considered to be one of the most fiscally responsible governments um, in Canadian history. They really turned around Saskatchewan's finances and delivered numerous balanced budgets.
1: They they also didn't have a choice. Did you read what Janice McKinnon had to actually yeah. deal with when she was the finance finance minister? Like Saskatchewan was almost bankrupt.
0: Almost bankrupt. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, so there was some criticism from opponents of the UCP and Politico's that uh, her her public commentary about Alberta not having a revenue problem but having a spending problem and that in order to get Alberta's budget back onto balance, they would have to look at reducing the per capita cost of the public service and and public services is. And uh, so a lot of people were critical, saying that the outcome of that panel was kind of preordained. And then one of the other criticisms that came up is that the mandate that the panel was given was to only look at expenses, not to look at revenues as potential solutions for getting Alberta's budget back on track.
1: So it was preordained, even if the panel didn't know it. Uh, um, what they were actually tasked with and what they were allowed to look at really was that that gave them the answers that the UCP is looking for, which is where do we cut?
0: Totally. Yeah. And it's interesting because I I know somebody who's in the government that I was talking with last week, um, somebody who works in the civil service and is fairly well connected to some senior conservatives in the party and i'm told that the ucp was none too happy with the results of the blue ribbon panels report and that they felt it wasn't aggressive enough and so it was interesting because we had finance minister travis taves giving his quote-unquote fiscal update yeah, um, which was two pages of gobbledygook um, they couldn't give us any projections couldn't give us any Measurement of what sort of pathway they were on, nothing like that. Um, But in that press availability, one of the things that he said was that the blue ribbon panel will be factored into the budget, but they're also going to take their own assumptions and desired outcomes and marry the two. And that's the first time that we've heard that kind of verbiage. So that to me lends a little bit of credibility to this rumor from this person that the UCP and the government wasn't happy with what the Blue Ribbon Panel had recommended.
1: Okay and now I you know in one of those weird things that I ended up researching one day uh, did you know so this is this is actually something that really bothered me when I figured it out so um, you know we're all moving to each of the provinces has you know some aspect of uh privatization where it comes you know for for certain things so mris is probably the most popular one
0: Mm -hmm. uh
1: do you know what the price differential is between provinces
0: um i do recall off the top of my head reading something i i don't remember exact numbers but if i recall correctly alberta's was like three or four times what it is in bc to get one is Uh, that correct
1: Yes, it is. And yeah. so B.C., uh, the amount that they charge the public health care system is around two hundred and fifty dollars for an MRI. But in Alberta, it's twelve hundred. And that's I that's wild. Like what? Yeah. And uh, B- or, sorry, Ontario is. If I recall correctly, Ontario is somewhere around uh, between six or seven hundred but again, yeah. like, what, like, there's no reason why an MRI is cheaper in BC.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's know,
1: so, yeah. Um, and that actually quite bothered me because that's, to me, that's an area where you can say, this isn't right. Right. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're not going to pay you $1,200 when, you know, you can make, tw- or when you only get 250 for it in BC. Um, Something that definitely concerns me though, of course, is that uh, I don't know that I don't know that I trust the UCP to crack down on overcharging by private contractors.
0: No, well, and one of the concerns that I hear from people is that kind of long term, we know the UCP is in favor of more private delivery. Right. Um, but the kind of long term vision is the blue ribbon panel and the state of the budget and deficit and debt is going to give justification to drastically cut expenditures on health care. And then that will trigger people being upset with the state of public health care and how long access times are. And that will be the doorway to justifying bringing in private providers and making access quote-unquote faster Um, but it'll just be a parallel system where you're going to have the wealthy and those who can afford to pay more be able to get first-rate care and everybody else goes on a waiting list for old equipment and rundown facilities so
1: and overworked staff
0: yeah you bet And the problem with that is, unless it's extremely well regulated, uh, you attract top talent to the private system because there's more profit motive there. So,
1: and yeah. I mean, just with our brief discussion about MRIs, we can say right away that it's not very well regulated as it is.
0: Yep, absolutely. Uh, so we've digressed quite a bit off of the topic at hand, which is it was all related <laughs> decision making by panel. Uh, so we have the safe consumption site. Let's take a look at that um, kind of tangential to healthcare. care. Uh, so Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions Jason Luan appointed a panel that is chaired by former Edmonton City Police Chief Rog Connect and has a number of people, and again, this panel was given a fairly narrow mandate. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and so what was it that they were tasked with looking at?
1: So this, I guess this is a another weird, you know, uh, mandate, is that this panel for uh, safe consumption sites, they're not looking at uh, what safe consumption sites do for people who use safe consumption sites. They are, uh, as, as Minister Luan said, um, they already have all the data. They know what benefits are provided to people who use safe consumption but safe consumption sites. So this group has been tasked with finding out how the community around safe consumption sites is affected Mm -hmm. so this is uh in a way it's not i mean it is related to uh sorry supervised consumption sites but it's it's more it's more focused on the community that those are in
0: yeah the problem I have with this panel, aside from such a narrow mandate, is that uh, Associate Minister Loan has already kind of tipped his hand in terms of his belief that uh, supervised consumption isn't an appropriate treatment method. And we know from evidence that you can't treat a body that's dead.
2: Mm-hmm
0: and uh so that's the first fundamental problem is that uh, an addict who's dead is not treatable. Mm-hmm. Um, the second piece is that they're when they're looking at community impacts, my fear is, and my the thing that I suspect is is that they're going to be looking at anecdotal evidence they're not going to be looking at data-driven evidence. And Keith Juran with the Edmonton Journal wrote a really good column, and there was a report that just came out recently that shows that crime around the sites is actually lower. The number of needles collected um, in in and around the Edmonton neighbourhoods is about 50% lower. So what's happening is, yes, you have a concentration of these drug users where these sites are being set up, and part of the problem is that there's very few of them. Um, So the users are going there. But when you look at the impact in terms of if you can prevent a hepatitis infection or if you can prevent an HIV infection and the costs that are associated with treating a person who has those in the long run we can be taking those savings and investing them in community policing in community cleanliness initiatives things like that Um, and the evidence already supports that these sites do reduce harm both to the community and to the users of the sites so for me looking at the mandate and the composition of the people on this panel it appears very clear to me that the the outcome is kind of already fixed as well. And that they're going to be making decisions based on their feels and not based upon what the data is. And it's never in my mind good when we're making decisions based on how people feel.
1: It's true. Um, But I will come, I will come to the defense of Dr. Rob only because uh, Dr. Carly K who I follow on Twitter and she's just, her commentary is amazing and she's very, Um, logical and, and, you know, doesn't really, uh, mince words, but she, she was saying that she was very happy to see Dr. Rob on there. He is, um, he is someone who has been involved with, um, like opioid addiction research and around these sorts of things. He's, he's a proponent of supervised consumption sites. Um, and the work that they do. And I know that it's like, it's, this is something that I've seen on social media, or like within a a group that I know who really, really hates supervised consumption sites. But they've been asking for, you know, the better part of a couple of months, uh, why don't we have any stats? Why don't we know how many people, you know, actually did end up getting clean and and how many referrals and things like that. And we didn't have those stats, but we do now. Like that just recently came out. um, And from what I've read, the biggest NIMBY, the biggest knot in my backyard is coming out of Lethbridge. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's business owners right around. uh, They've, they've had trouble in Lethbridge Mm -hmm. with the business owners. And yet you know i i the first one that i read which was when the site first opened and you know there was there was one business owner who said you know i don't know if i'll i don't know if i'll manage to make it to the end of my lease which was I believe january or it's this coming january that her lease is finished uh she didn't know if she was going to be able to stay in business because business had gone down so much she is still in business over a year later um you know the the carpet Company that again is right beside the supervised consumption, supervised, yeah, consumption site in Lethbridge, is uh, uh, they were they made a comment as well that they didn't know if they were going to stay in business. Again, they're still there as well, so they were thinking of moving. Apparently, they haven't bothered. So I'm not sure. uh, I'm not sure if there's been any change these like i said these these businesses haven't moved Mm -hmm. they're all still apparently running so i don't know that it was as bad as they thought it was going to be but there it it could just be that like i said that nimby mentality of well i i just don't want that here
0: yeah and i think there's an element of the unknown as well um and when you have unknown people react out of fear um, which is a natural human response but i think that proponents of these sites what they need to do is they need to do a better job of educating people they do need to do a better job of making sure that the community negative impacts are minimized so that you can get people on board Um, And it all does boil down to communication and relationship building, I think in the long run, but on the flip side of it, you do have opponents there. I forget his name, but one of the Lethbridge city councilors was talking about there being pumping music and people were bragging about how many times they'd overdosed and stuff like that. And it just, it's so detached from reality. And um, you know, he was even complaining because he heard that they were giving out pizza and granola bars and stuff like at the end of the day, these addicts are still people and they want to be treated like people and seen as humans. And that's a big barrier to them seeking treatment is the fact that they are dehumanized by so many people. And I, you know, it just, it just seems like a humane thing to do in terms of building relationships and getting people into treatment to actually treat them like human beings, which is totally crazy. And, uh, yeah, I I work in some really rough neighborhoods where we have some drug users. Um, and, you know, there's we find needles and w- drugs left in our bathrooms and stuff like that. And we have to deal with that. So I understand the apprehension of the community and stuff. But um, you just you kind of have to, like I said, understand that, If you actually believe in humanity, and lots of these people, I will say are Mm pro-life, then you have to not just say that people who have addictions deserve to die, right? Right. And yes, you're not going to help everybody, but what is the cost of a human life and what can we do to get people onto that pathway? And the one thing I will say about the UCP that they are correct on is that there was a really large focus on these safe consumption sites and probably not enough invested into mental health addictions treatment. Um, So why not just invest in that? Why, like, why does there always have to be a winner and a loser in all these situations?
1: Well, and I think um, like this is, in, in my mind, this is just like uh, so many so many issues with our healthcare system as well that we we need to move the focus to prevention, but in the meantime you still need to treat everything in the meantime. It's it's going to take, I mean, a, a real push towards prevention, which is needed. Is going to take 20 years before you actually see the savings on the healthcare side, right? On the actual treatment side, because you still have to treat everything in the meantime, and it's not an expense that, you know, that that long-term planning does not seem to be a, 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 an Alberta advantage
0: <laughs>
2: that way.
1: Well.
0: I think it's a function of just our government system and social media world too that we don't think big picture. We think for <laughs> you know f- four years. <laughs> we think for four year periods, um, and uh, Deirdre's dying and she's hacking up along here. So
1: well, we have used to think in four year periods, right? Like no. we we had a government for forty years.
0: Yeah, no, we didn't. But um,
1: all of a sudden, we now we do.
0: Well, I just, I don't think it's unique to Alberta. I think it's a function of the fact that you have never-ending news and political bombardment. And so there's this sense of decision-making that is for the immediate versus what the long-term picture and vision are, right? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, and I was reading, oh, I guess this is actually relevant to... uh One of the other panels? Okay, no, it must have been the Blue Ribbon panel. Um, But I was actually reading on the Blue Ribbon panel, and I I have to say this because uh, I'll quote I do think the government needs to be nudged a little bit in terms of better financial planning, unquote. Trevor (laughs) Toom. And I mean, he's, you know, he did a fantastic, uh, he did a fantastic what if kind of scenario that looked at that looked at what's going to happen in Alberta in the next 20, 30 years. And Mm -hmm. that was like, that was actually a really, really scary paper that he did, but it was scary because we are not prepared for it. We, We weren't prepared today and we are not prepared for 20 years from now when there's a really, really, really big strain on our healthcare system. So, um, you know, but this is, I think, something that that really needs to be done. Although I did notice as well, um, they referenced in the same article, they referenced the uh, the five years of detail and 10 years of somewhat detail in Jim Prentice's budget. Mm. Now, the 10-year somewhat detail, if I recall correctly, um, a lot of people considered that to be super arrogant.
2: Mm.
1: I mean like and and that was actually like how do we even come up with that because we had a a government one government for 40 years why can't he make a 10 year budget
0: Yeah well I mean when you start a business they look for a 10 year forecast and then you usually update it on a regular basis so I mean it's not unreasonable Yeah Yeah I,
1: so I I think that like I would I would love to see a little more of that long-term planning and and you're right with the supervised consumption sites that uh, where do they go from there? do we have somewhere that we can actually refer them to do we have those um, you know those uh, detox whatever they are rehabilitation I, I don't even know what to call them but um, but they're they're hospital like really yep. Yep. and I know that Lethbridge actually was scheduled to get something. But again, that is something that as well has been held. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like it, it, all of these things require spending and, and they have to justify it. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's tough, right? We're, we're in debt and nobody wants to spend anything on anything.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, in the long run, we're going to pay one way or another, right? And so whether it's. Increased healthcare costs for EMRs having to intervene in hospital stays and treatment of again HIV and hepatitis and
2: huh.
0: yeah so uh, so speaking of ideologically driven we have two more <laughs> panels um, so let's take a look at uh, surprisingly probably the least controversial of the two <laughs> the curriculum review panel
1: yeah <laughs> actually I. You know, I mean, there there are obviously some issues. There are no current teachers on the panel. Uh, However, hey, that guy
0: taught in 1980.
1: Right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But he actually he was he was running uh, Edmonton, or sorry, he was superintendent of Edmonton Public Schools. Yeah. I think the whole thing, while they were actually making their big change over the last you know decade or so, so he was there. He was intricately involved in that. Um, I've read some of his stuff. He is, he is a, he supports the public system. He also supports the private system and and charter schools and things, not because, uh, not because he wants it to compete with public schools, but because he wants public schools to compete with them. Mm. Said if this if the, like if if a public school or sorry if a private school or a charter school opens up and they're doing these amazing things, the public system should be adopting that. Yeah. He said like these they they should exist because they're the ones that keep us moving and constantly trying to better ourselves. He said if they don't pop up, he said we don't know what's new and and you know we run the risk of of be of stagnating. <laughs> like -hmm. like most of our public schools have but Edmonton is by far um, and you're actually there so I don't know if you know how fantastic the Edmonton public school system is but it's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah it it is and I know quite a few of the trustees for the public school board um, and I've done some projects with some of them and uh, also ran a campaign for one of the school board trustee candidates in the last election. And uh, yeah, I mean, overall, they're a fairly well put together board. They do a really good job of running the system. Um, I know that the Catholic school board in Edmonton does outperform academically, but I also know that the public school board... Uh, does operate in some tougher communities where there's large immigrant populations and stuff, and they do some really fantastic work with the people there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I have no criticisms. And sometimes I wonder if the fact that we do have these kind of parallel systems is part of the reason that Alberta's education system has been so good historically. And if it does push each other to, to be the same, the one I have a little bit of a problem with is the charter schools where they are getting student funding, but also charging 10 or $20,000 in tuition. Um, Those give me a little bit of heartburn and then some religious objections that I have um, to the Catholic school and some of their, um, equality issues, but uh, I digress uh, I do know the vice chair of the curriculum review panel as well Jen Panteluk. Um i she used to be with Ronald McDonald House, which I have done a ton of volunteering for. And she was the CEO and president of Junior Achievement Northern Alberta. And I've volunteered for them for about four and a half, five years now. Um, And she's very, very smart. She is a super hard worker. She is progressive. um, And I think that she will add a lot of value to that panel. And she has worked with teachers a lot through junior achievement and through delivering curriculum, um, but that also focuses on like financial literacy and community and diversity and stuff like that. Um, So just having worked with Jen and knowing the values that she has and the experience that she has, I was really excited to see her name pop up there. And I think that I'm keeping a very open mind because I know some of the people on there and what they stand for. And so, I'm hopeful that they will do a really good job in adding to the work that was done under the NDP versus tearing it down and shredding it. So.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm hoping so as well and as someone who has children in a system outside of Edmonton, I am so super jealous and I would love to see that kind of thing coming, you know, in my like coming towards my direction because I, and now, granted, too, I'm out in rural, and in rural, you just have less choice. But, um, but still, I, I, I'm hoping that this, you know, may actually benefit uh, rural schools, and not necessarily with the curriculum, but at least with maybe how they deliver certain things. So, for sure, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm also, you know, relatively optimistic about this panel i don't think they're going to shred the curriculum um of course you know who knows yeah but <laughs> no, they were absolutely. actually tasked
0: with <laughs> yeah uh just knowing again some of the people on there though i don't think they would have accepted if they were given a, a narrow mandate and it sounds like they do have a fair bit of latitude um so the next panel, which has been panned by pretty much everybody except for <laughs> a joke, yeah, um, <laughs> the minimum <laughs> the minimum wage quote unquote expert panel, yeah, um, so you know, the chair of this has he wrote a piece um for the c d Howe Institute that predicted that the increase in minimum wage in Alberta to $15 an hour could lose as much as, I believe, as 25,000 jobs. Um, and so he's kind of tipped his hand in terms of where his head is at. But <laughs> if he is able to support that conclusion with data, I'm okay with that. Um, I'm kind of of the mind that minimum wage needed to increase, but it increased very, very fast and some businesses had a hard time adapting to that. And I know that people will say, well, if you can't adapt, then you shouldn't be in business, but uh, you've entrepreneurs and small businesses are investing oftentimes their life savings often take less pay than their employees do home. And I just don't think it's fair to entrepreneurs either to expect them to give up their life savings. Um, I think we needed to get to where we're at but we could have done that in a more measured way and taken some time to look at data and evidence and make sure that it wasn't having a negative impact Um, but this panel is tasked specifically with looking at servers specifically liquor servers and whether or not it makes sense to have a lower differential for them. Um, there was a really interesting tweet thread that was posted by uh, Dr. Lindsey Teds from the U of C uh, Public School of Policy. And it was talking about some of the data that they've seen on servers and the amount of Um, tips that they're claiming and when they actually did surveys and studies they found that the industry standard was kind of 10 percent of the tips that people actually made is what they were claiming and so some people's incomes in the liquor service industry were as high as $140,000 dollars tax (laughs) tax-free and uh, so i mean it's pretty wild but that's 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 kind of an outlier though Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, it was I believe it was 60 000 to 140,000 was the range. Um, but again, tax free. Um, and so the implication here is that first off, we're leaving a lot of re- government revenue on the table, okay. um, which is problematic in terms of funding services, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But in the long run, actually, it has an impact on poverty and pensionable earnings. Because if you're not claiming it, you're not getting your CPP and and um, whatnot, because it's based upon your earnings. And so it does have an impact primarily on women who are low wage earners, um, who primarily work in the liquor service uh, hospitality field, we'll call it, uh, later on in life as well. So it's, um, you know, they're benefiting now, but it's costing down the road in what their pensionable earnings are. Um, so I found that kind of interesting. And then the composition of the panel. Um, you've got CFIB, which is advocated against the minimum wage. You've got representatives of Restaurants Canada, which is advocated against the minimum wage. And then you've got these quote-unquote um, server experts who are liquor servers, but it turns out they're relatives or employed by the representatives from Restaurants Canada and one of the restaurants that's um, against that is... Yeah, that is represented on the panel. So you've got these three or four people on the panel that are all interconnected, and a couple of them that rely on that employer for their employment, who's Mm -hmm. also represented on the panel. So are they going to give an unbiased, unfiltered um, representation of what they think is the best?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a, that it, it's kind of a strange makeup. I mean, it's, this is, this is by far, the worst panel. I mean, like, you you had the ones with very narrow mandates um, that are basically being asked to, you know, fix something up so the UCP can do something unpopular. Um, but this one, I mean, this one doesn't even attempt to look like it might be uh, unbiased in some way. Like, I, I Googled you know, the, the first four people and I was able to find their anti minimum wage commentary very quickly.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So that was just, I thought, really? Um, yeah, like there was just, there was no attempt whatsoever to, to make this look, uh, like anything other than what it is, which is a panel who's going to say, no liquor service should make less. And, and I actually, I managed to only get I only got two people to give me feedback on that, uh, none of them from my home area, but uh, one actually who's been in the service industry for you know 15 years or something and so he was saying that that yes he he thinks that no he's serving uh, he said that yes he thinks they should make the same minimum wage as everyone else and you know, but he also said that that he thinks that tipping maybe should start to go, so that was interesting from him. and then uh, one other person who responded to me was a business owner, and she said that it's she said that she she, as a business owner, would have a difficult time lowering someone's wage to what they were already making and she said but but it would really be awkward she said because every new person that you hire you can hire them in as, at a lower wage she said it's going to create friction between uh the staff and and the employer if you know they are hiring at the lower wage or they're going to keep maintain that that wage and but yeah she said she would have a difficult time lowering someone's wage but she said it would definitely make things awkward if they if they hire in at a lower wage
0: yeah Um, I know a few business owners and that's what they've done is they've left existing employees. Um, they've started hiring new employees at the lower wage. Um, and so far the feedback that I've heard, there's not really, um, much friction or issue. Um, but who knows, maybe that will come. Um, the other thing that, uh, Some people have said is that they figure it would give people incentive to stay in a job where they were making $15 because they run the risk of um, if they were to change that they would go to, particularly students, obviously, because we have the lower student differential now. Um, They run the risk of going to a job where potentially they would make less money. So yeah,
1: And I think, I mean, because of this now, I think you definitely have more individuals who are going to be asking that question.
0: Yep. No, for sure, absolutely. If I was interviewing for a new minimum wage job, that would be one of my questions: "What do you pay me?"
1: Um, okay. But yeah. I'm
0: also 36, so I don't need to worry about that lower minimum wage. Um, so, bottom line with all these panels, uh, why are they doing this?
1: Well, like you said, political cover. Absolutely, yeah. they're you know they're they're wanting someone else to make the decision and someone else to take the hits when when the government does what it wants to do, but doesn't want to uh, show any spine in admitting that they want to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, I wrote a satire piece, but satire closer than ever to reality, um, on politicalrnd.ca. And I titled it, Fiscal Panel Delivers Political Cover for Budgetary Blitzkrieg. Oh! And uh, so, I mean, really, ultimately, that's what it is, is they know they're going to have to make some tough decisions if they're going to deliver on the rhetoric that they've been uh, spewing constantly. And this is really just about covering their ass when the inevitable backlash comes, particularly in Edmonton. So.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, um, and I like, I don't know. The minimum wage panel, again, that is the worst panel. It's got the worst makeup. There is not one person who doubts what's going to come out of this panel which is really sad. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't put an expert panel together to you know, uh study something when you know what their answer is going to be. And and I understand um you know, people towards the right have said this the same thing, you know, when the NDP brought in David Dodge.
0: Yeah.
1: Right to they knew beforehand, well, he is a proponent of of stimulating the economy with some capital spending Mm -hmm. and so they brought him in so that he would say that and then they could say no look we asked somebody so i get it that this is something that that governments do um i don't know i just i kind of wish that I kind of wish that that wasn't the case. I mean, you know, Robbie, we got to be part of this interesting little experiment of uh, of asking people to to figure things out. And, and what they came up with might not be something we agreed with. And yep. that was okay, right? It was find this stuff out and now how do we, you know, how do we deal with this? How do we adopt this or whatever? And so... Yeah, so I just kind of see some of this other stuff as being just lame, just really lame.
0: Yeah, well, I think at the end of the day, one of the successes, especially looking at where the Alberta Party is today, is Hmm. uh, don't ask a question that you don't already have a preordained answer for, because you might not like the actual answer.
1: (laughs) But that's not a bad thing. It's learning something new, and it's like... What it, what's one of the things that I said recently? It was um, it was. Oh, I was I was quoting Emma Graney's tweets while she was um, while she was in with Minister Taves and the fiscal update. And one of the things that I quoted and I'm like, because we're going to or sorry, because the UCP is going to govern ideologically because. People like what they have to say. It doesn't matter that it's not working and it doesn't matter that it's a bad decision. It's better than having people maybe not like what they're doing. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is so much bigger than, oh, but I don't like what they're saying, right? This is our, this is our government. This is our future, our, like they're setting policy that will affect us. (sighs)
0: Yeah, that's just where we're at politically right now, though, is um, the the populist forces are very strong. And you don't have people that are actually leaders and can go out and sell a policy and what the merits of it are. Everything is based on an opinion poll and trying to... It's like a cat chasing a laser.
1: <laughs> mm. Oh, but this affects more than just, you know, a couple of people. Uh, Really sad. Um, It is. Okay. So.
0: Okay. So that's our opinion, which is a good segue into our next segment, where we're going to be looking at various op-eds that have come out. And what's your title for this one?
1: The title for this one is Burn It to the Ground.
0: Burn It to the Ground. Okay. We'll (laughs) see you guys soon. You can find Political R&D podcasts, blogs, and our social media tags on our website at politicalrnd.ca.
1: Goodbye, Robbie.
0: Goodbye, Deirdre. (laughs)